Philippians chapter 1, and if you can stand with me in honor of God's Word, please do so. Philippians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 is our text for this morning, but I want to read from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. This is God's Word. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, back in my teenage years, I played baseball in high school. In fact, three players from my high school team ended up playing pro baseball. That's my claim to fame. And um, in fact, part of the reason why I never played was because those guys um, were the starters and I always backed them up. So that's my excuse, right? And if you've ever been a part of a sports team, right? For me, it was a baseball team. Then you've experienced the sense of, of connection, the sense of camaraderie, the sense of closeness which can exist among team members of a particular sports team. You know, you spend so much time together, of course, trying to work on your abilities and expertise in different areas of the game. You learn some lessons that really even apply to life uh, in some cases. You experience the joy of victory as well as the pain of defeat, which we did in the championship game at the time. But as you go through all of that uh, season, there is this connection and this bond that you have. There is a sense that you know, you're striving for a goal bigger than yourselves. Our coach would often tell us, hey, the name on the front of your jersey is more important than the name on the back of your jersey. In my case, Hernandez, right? Chiefs was the name of the team. And he would say, that name is more important than any of us individually. Now, when you think about that, whether it's a sports team or maybe a job or career or any other um, particular organization that you could be a part of, um, all of those examples, including sports teams, are temporary earthly endeavors, right? They are not permanent. In fact, I don't even keep up with those guys anymore. I did for a period of time, but not very much after we graduated from high school. And so that sense of camaraderie and connection ceased to exist because our connection, again, was a, a very temporary thing. It was a passing season of my life, which is no more. And yet, when you think about Christianity, brethren, and the Christian church, and ministry in the church, it's far different than any connection like that. Because in the church, there is a partnership that goes beyond this earthly life. It's not just teamwork in the sense in the, in the worldly sense in the church. It's teamwork in the kingdom of God sense. We are working together and serving side by side for things that will go on forever if we are seeking to honor Christ in accordance with His Word in the way that we partner together, in the way that we serve together. And the more that we understand this partnership, biblically speaking, as God defines it, the more that we should function 
as a team in ministry. The more that we should be committed to partnering together for the sake of the Gospel. Because we recognize that we share an eternal partnership that can never be broken. Can I remind you even this morning that if you're a believer, if you are in Christ, we're actually going to spend eternity together, whether you like it or not, right? That's significant for the present. Because knowing that we've been brought into this eternal family and partnership should have implications for the way that we flesh out ministry and service with one another. Our partnership with one another. Well, few Christians understood this reality greater than the Apostle Paul or better than the Apostle Paul. Paul was a a man who lived with this deep sense of commitment to partnership with his fellow brethren. Constantly in his letters, if you've read the Pauline letters, you have name after name after name of his partners in ministry. Epaphras and others. In Colossians chapter 4, the, the epistle that you walked through last year into this year, multiple names are mentioned in Colossians 4, ministry partners that Paul had. Even here in Philippians, we have Epaphroditus and Timothy, and even the Philippians were ministry partners. Partnership ministry was huge for Paul. He was not an isolated, individualistic type of a person. He wanted to work in teamwork with other believers for a greater purpose than just a sports team. It was for the sake of the progress of the Gospel. Now we've been working verse by verse, as you know, through this first section, Philippians 1, 3-11, and considering the theme of Gospel-fueled practices. Practices that should be a part of us as individual believers, but also should be a a culture, a growing culture in our church, where if we're focused on the Gospel, if Christ is is central, then we're going to be characterized by these Gospel-fueled practices. We've seen, if you remember a couple of Sundays ago, that we need to be characterized by an attitude of gratitude if we are Gospel-fueled believers, Christ-centered ones. We've also seen that where the Gospel is central, we're going to be a people who are increasingly abounding in love for one another. That's a love that is increasing, that is growing, that is maturing, that is discerning, that is enduring, and that is fruitful in driving us to do what is right in the truth and in love. Well, today we jump back into the middle of this section, verses 6-8 through of Philippians 1, considering this important practice of what I call taking a partnership approach in life and ministry. Taking a partnership approach in life and ministry. We want to ponder what it means that we serve with a mindset that we're all in this together. That we're working together. That we're partnering together for this wonderful, great enterprise, which is the enterprise of the Gospel. And it's the greatest enterprise, isn't it, brethren? The progress of the Gospel is the greatest enterprise. Just think about this. In a broken and fallen world, we have a message of hope for the world. It's called the Gospel, the good news of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the worst of sinners, including ourselves. That even though we are guilty as sinners and we deserve hell and condemnation, that there is this one Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who has come into the world to absorb the wrath of God for our sins. He bore our sins on the cross. And by trusting in Jesus, we can actually be reconciled to our Maker and live out our purpose. Amen? That's a wonderful, wonderful message that we have the Gospel. And so, since we have this greatest message, how do we partner together to advance this message all the more? What should be our mindset? 
What should be our approach? Well, I call it a partnership approach. And as we consider this partnership approach in life and ministry, we should strive first and foremost for an optimistic partnership. If you're taking notes, that's your first point. We should be striving for an optimistic partnership. Paul was an apostle and a pastor in his own right who had an optimistic outlook of the future. And as believers, we need to be fighting for that by the grace of God, by the strength that the Spirit of God supplies to be optimistic. Look at verse 6. For I am confident, he says, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, Paul says, I'm driven to, to thanksgiving for you in view of your participation in the gospel from verse 5, right? And because of this, I have this confidence. I am confident, which is to say, I have this unwavering trust, this firm conviction that God will bring you to the finish line. Boy, that's a bold statement, isn't it? Especially in light of the fact that we are all sinners saved by grace, and so were these Philippians. And yet Paul says, oh, no, no, I know that God will bring you to the end. He's going to bring you to completion. That's a bold statement. So where does Paul get this sense of optimism from? Well, it's not faith in himself, right? It's not faith in these Christians in and of themselves. I mean, again, they have their own set of issues as we have our own set of issues. Listen, this deep-seated confidence comes from trust in a great God. A great God who accomplishes great things and sinners saved by grace from the very beginning all the way to the end. It's because of God that Paul is optimistic about the trajectory and the future of individual Philippian believers and of them as a church. Because of God. Now, I want to be clear, we're not speaking here about worldly optimism. You know, there's a book out there that came out a few years ago by a guy named Norman Vincent Peale titled The Power of Positive Thinking. And in this book, the author made the point again and again and again that amongst other things, all you have to do is believe in yourself. If you believe in yourself, then you can accomplish great things, anything you set your heart out to do. Self-confidence is the key to success. You have the ability within yourself to generate the inner strength and power to overcome the greatest obstacles of life. This is a, this is a bestseller. People ate it up, read it. It was a popular out there. Maybe still is to some extent or another. And other books that have been written as a result of that book. Now, as Christians, of course... We understand that the whole book is really devoted to the idea or ideology of secular humanism. It's all about elevating the mighty human self. Secular humanism doesn't point you to faith in God, but to faith in yourself. Believe in yourself is the common, common statement, common quote. This is the core message of the book as well. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not talking about worldly optimism. Contrary to secular humanism, Paul's optimism, brethren, is a Scripture-informed and Scripture-regulated type of optimism as God defines it. So he's not pointing to faith in himself. He's not pointing to faith in, in these Christians or to faith in faith. Believe in yourself in some nebulous kind of a way. No. 
Paul's unwavering confidence has a very definite object. He says, God and God alone is the object of my deep-seated and unwavering confidence. He is going to perfect you, believers. That's my confidence. That word perfect there means to bring something to its full and intended completion. And this implies, of course, that God is more than powerful, more than mighty, more than able to accomplish His work in you, sinners saved by grace. What comfort that should bring to our hearts. This is what we refer to as the doctrine of divine preservation. It's the biblical teaching that reminds us that God is, not, is one that not only purposes to save us, but also that He intends to preserve us all the way until the end. The doctrine of divine preservation. Look with me in Romans chapter 8, and I want to show you this. Just a few pages back, Romans 8. Wonderful chapter of Romans where Paul is talking about life in the Spirit. And then he transitions in Romans 8, verses 26 and following to address the issue of, of hope in the midst of a broken, fallen world. Right, Our world is, is suffering, and that is the reality of life and the light of sin and brokenness and a fallen mankind. And notice what he says in verse 26 of Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. That is in the midst of suffering. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28. We love this verse, don't we? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And then Paul launches here into a series of, of unbreakable chain links describing the power of God at work in you as a believer. Notice verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, there's the first unbreakable chain link of God's working. He also predestined, there's a second one, to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, and these whom He predestined, He also called, there's a third unbreakable chain link of God's power in and through you, believer. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. See that? Five different unbreakable chain links of God's working in you as a believer. He will preserve you. And then, Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or, or distress or persecution or, or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or, or COVID, right? Or the results of COVID? Just as it is written, verse 36, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquered through Him who loved us. For I am convinced. Paul is persuaded beyond the shadow of a doubt, he says. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said what, brethren? Amen. This is the unbreakable chain of God's working. 
a beautiful reality that in a broken and fallen world as Christians, we can rest assured that God won't let us go. He will preserve us until the end. Thus, we don't need to fear or be dismayed. Come what may come into the future. Right? Even as elections approach. Yes? Who cares? Right? Our salvation is, is preserved by Almighty God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Just write that text down. Paul says to the highly problematic church, mind you, at Corinth, God will confirm you, Corinthian believers, to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of the day of glorification, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God will preserve us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says that when we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. I love that. Beautiful reminder of God's preservation if we really belong to Him. Listen to A.T. Robertson who comments this, quote, God both initiates and consummates my salvation. Thus, I can be assured He will not misstep in between. I like that. God both initiates and consummates my salvation. Thus, I can be assured that He will not misstep in between. Wow. If you're truly in Christ, your eternal security is as sure as God's character is sure and unchanging. And so this is the, the theological and doctrinal undergirding you understand of, of Paul's confidence. It's the unwavering character of God and the divine working of God in the lives of His brethren that fuels His partnership with them. God Himself, in other words, is why Paul is optimistic this is the basis of him not giving up on them, for not becoming pessimistic rather than optimistic. God's ongoing working in people, brethren, equally then, is the reason why you and I should not give up on one another so quickly in our partnership. Why you and I should be biblically optimistic in our ongoing partnering with one another. And you know what? I'm convinced that part of the problem is is that you and I as human beings, as sinners saved by grace, tend to see people in the moment. We tend to see one another in the, in the moment of weakness. With all of our flaws. With all of our failings. We don't look to the future, right? But God sees people for who they will become in Christ when they are perfected. That would help us. We tend to focus on the failures of the past and the present. Focusing on the person's faults and weaknesses and can't seem to get past the past griefs that we cause one another, right? This is why we're so quick to just want to give up. To throw in the towel. To lose heart. But listen, true unity and partnership comes from looking at Christ, not on one another. We need to look at Christ, not on one another. And it's when we focus on God's working in the lives of people, then, then there's room for biblical optimism. It's because of who God is, His working in the lives of others, that you and I can choose to think the best. We can choose to give thanks for the evidences of God's grace in someone else's life. Because see, God is always working on each of us. Amen? He's working on me, working on you, conforming us into the image of His beloved Son. And if we keep that in mind, then our partnership with others will be positive and optimistic rather than negative and pessimistic. And so this is Paul, by God's grace, 
He's an optimistic leader, an optimistic brother in Christ, not because of some worldly positive thinking, but because of God's working, because of God's majesty, because of God's faithfulness. His sustaining grace. I love what William Hendrickson comments here. Quote, Not until that day has arrived will that work of God be completed which qualified these Christians and which led to their hearty cooperation in spreading the gospel and which ends in the completed partnership. In other words, we're in this thing until the end, right? Then he adds, moreover, it takes all God's ransomed children to make one ransomed child complete. A brick may have the appearance of a finished product, but it will look rather lonely until it is given its proper place in a row of bricks and a tier. When all the rows and tiers are in, then the beautiful temple is finished. So also God's children, like so many living stones, will form a finished temple when Jesus returns and not until then. Like the dawning light that shines brighter and brighter, Unto the coming of the perfect day, it is then that he who began a good work in them will have completed it. End quote. You see that? What he's saying is that our partnership is optimistic because God is at work in us and together until the end to perfect us, to bring us to that point where we see Jesus and we become like him. Amen? Because we shall see him just as he is. And so we should strive for a partnership approach in ministry, and it should be an optimistic partnership because of God's working in and through us. That's the first point. But secondly, secondly, we should strive also for an affectionate partnership. An affectionate partnership. Write that down. We should always guard our hearts, brethren, and remind ourselves of this. God cares not only that we work together and that we're in partnership together, but He also cares how we do it and why we do it. It's not just you serving alongside of others that matters. It's how you serve alongside of others. It's why you serve alongside of others. And it should be done out of a heart of affection. Love for God and love for one another. Look at this in verse 7. Paul is an affectionate brother in Christ. He longs for affectionate partnership. He wants to foster that. Verse 7, For it is only right for me to feel this way. Right means it's proper. It makes sense. It's right that I should feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. As if to say, you're, you're dear to me. Your names are inscribed upon my heart. I'm mindful of you. Remember back in verse 3, he says that? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I continually think about you fondly. Verse 8, For God is my witness, how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is not being disingenuous here. He says, God is my witness. God knows my heart. He knows my motives. He knows my intentions. That I sincerely and care about you. He's my witness. He knows. And so Paul has a sincere affection for them. Look at the language again, right? It's, it's heartfelt, it's strong, it's profound, it's intense. I long for you. I miss you guys. I miss you guys. Later on in chapter 4, verse 1, he refers to them as, as my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. You're my prize in Christ, he says. The word translated affection there in verse 8 is a word which literally refers to the gut, to the bowels or intestines. And it was one of the strongest Greek words for expressing deep and profound affection for someone. Some have translated it tender affection. 
It's like when, you, when you've maybe told a family member, as we have in the Hernandez household, I love you so much it hurts. Have you ever said that? All right, well, we do. Half said over the years that, I love you so much it hurts. It's that idea. When he says the affection of Christ Jesus, what does he mean by that? The affection of Christ Jesus. Well, he means that Christ is the, is the source of this affection and that, Christ is, and that this affection is patterned after Christ. Christ is the source of this affection, and this affection is patterned after Christ. Christ is our great example of such affection, and the one who energizes this type of affection for one another in our partnership. Thus, we need to look to Him. We need to look to Him. Because it's not always easy to love one another as we should. Can I get an amen? Yeah, I'm not the only sinner in here, right? Yeah, it's hard. We are not as loving or affectionate as we think we are. We can be pretty prickly sometimes. Me too. What's the old saying? Ministry would be easy if it weren't for people, right? We can all be difficult sometimes. We're not as nice and kind as we think we are. Sometimes we're more like a a wet blanket than a soft and cuddly blanket, frankly. And so we must take our cues from our Lord Jesus Christ. See, ministry is, listen, Christ through us. Ministry is Christ through us. In fact, all of the Christian life is Christ through us. Marriage is Christ through you. Parenting is Christ through you. Working in the secular world is Christ through you. Brotherhood and sisterhood and partnership in the churches is Christ through us. What did Jesus say in in John chapter 15? Apart from me, you can do some things. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So all of life is Christ through us. That's what Paul is getting at here. And so as he speaks of this partnership with these Philippians, he possesses a a sincere and settled affection for them. It's not just this passing emotion, some superficial feeling he has, right? He fights by God's grace to partner with others in in an affectionate manner. He's not just going through the motions. Well, I just said, I guess I have to work with you, you know? Well, we don't, at least we don't have to be best friends. Hey, be careful with statements like that, right? You know, I'm going to get along with them, but I'm just thankful and I'll serve alongside of them. Uh, I'm just glad that we don't have to be best friends. That's a worldly, carnal kind of a statement. Because what you're really saying is, I'm just going to go through the motions. We're just going to clock in and out. I'm going to do what I need to do, but I don't have to be what? sincerely affectionate toward them. That's what we mean. That's worldly, brethren. Carnal. No. Paul possesses a sincere and settled affection, not just some passing emotion, right? In a minute, we'll see the root cause for Paul's affectionate partnership, but may I ask you, would this affectionate type of partnership come even close to describing how you view and work with other Christians in your life? Those who you serve alongside of. Do you partner in this manner? Is this how you feel? Is this what you're fighting by the grace of God to foster in your heart and life? And I get it. We're all, we all express our love in different ways, right? But there's room for growth in each of us and how we relate to others and how we serve alongside of others, how we partner with others. Do you strive? Do you strive for an affectionate partnership? You know, by and large, I think ladies tend to be generally better about expressing affection toward others than men, right? 
Once, just to confirm this, I did a little experiment with one of my, my little boys at the time. And I got to church early and sat in my car in the parking lot just to watch and observe how women greet one another as opposed to how men greet one another when they get to church. And, you know, I discovered some things. It was kind of enlightening. The ladies, generally speaking, most of the ladies, when they would get out of their cars or they get to the front of the building, you know, it was this kind of a thing. Sister, oh my goodness! You know, I missed you. How was your week? Right? Huggies, hugs, right? Words of affirmation. And then I watched the dudes, right? The men. Yeah, you see it coming. This was the men for the most part. Hey, what's up? Or the, the, you know, chest pump, you know? Or honestly, completely ignoring one another. Not even giving eye contact to anybody. Generally speaking, right? With some exceptions. This was sort of the pattern. Women are generally more affectionate and expressive than men, right? I think on the one hand, this is part of the, the beautiful, precious femininity of women. Yes? How God has wired women. I think that's part of it, right? Women tend to be just more affectionate, more inviting, and all of that, generally speaking. We dudes really have to work on this kind of stuff. But men, your pastor included, we need to work on this. Not in some emotionalistic or superficial way, but in a heartfelt, sincere manner in terms of our approach to other people, right? Listen, the manly man, Paul, actually was not afraid to express how he felt, right? I feel and I long for you and the affection of Christ Jesus. Boy, that makes us feel uncomfortable as dudes in the, on the chair, right? I don't want to be all about feelings. Well, Paul was a manly man. He was courageous. He stood for the defense and confirmation of the gospel in the face of the greatest opposition and persecution. He was courageous, and yet he was gentle, wasn't he? Loving. And he was a man saved by grace, flesh and blood just like us. What about the ultimate man, the God-man, Jesus, right? Was there anyone ever more strong and more courageous than Jesus? The answer is no. And yet, little children would come to Jesus and the apostles had to be telling them, hey, get off of them already, right? Christ was affectionate. He was loving. What do we learn from this? That whatever this looks like for you, right? And this is different for each of us. I understand that. I get it. Work on it. Quit making excuses, some of us. Quit making excuses. Quit blame shifting, right? This should be evident, this affectionate partnership in the church first and foremost. Let me just ask you, in the context of the church, as you partner with others, as you serve alongside of others, when was the last time that you told someone that you're thankful for them and why you're thankful for them? When was the last time you did that? It was verbally. Well, they know. No, they don't, right? No, they don't. When was the last time that you, that you actually told someone how much you appreciate them and why you appreciate them in the context of the church. When was the last time you did that? This affectionate partnership will also show itself, right, in the way that we serve alongside of one another. That it's joyful and loving service rather than service with a, with a stink eye. Right? With the Seattle freeze type of an attitude. There's no Seattle freeze in this church. Right? Or with a rotten attitude and disposition. By the way, if this is the way that we should be in the church, affectionate in our partnership with one another, this should also be evident in the home. Amen? 
It should be evident in the home. Ministry begins in the home. It doesn't end there, but ministry begins in the home. So let me ask you dads. Dads, we should work on being both strong and tender in the home with our wives, with our children, whether young or older, right? Listen, you and I are protectors and providers as men. We are not intimidators or manipulators. That's not what God has called us to do. And before I ask you the question, right, make sure that you as a husband and as a father, you are not using the delegated authority that God has given you to shepherd your family, to love your wife, and to love your kids, to provide and protect them. Make sure that you are not going outside of the bounds of your God-given delegated authority to exploit your family in any way, shape, or form. Because if you are, you're in sin and you need to repent of that. And you need to confess it to the Lord. And you need to get help for that. We need to be men who are leveraging the God-given authority that we have received for the shepherding of our families and for the love of our families. Amen? But let me ask you, dads, husbands, when was the last time you actually told your wife how much she means to you? Well, she knows, you know, she knows. No, she doesn't. Right, ladies? Do you know? No, we don't. Okay, right? When was the last time that you actually told your wife how much she means to you and why? What about your children, young or older? How much you love them and why specifically? Why you, what you appreciate about them? You know, I once counseled a family and there were many issues to deal with. But as we got deeper into the sessions, during one of those sessions, I'll never forget this, one of the teenage sons, 17 years old, began to weep and said, you know, Dad, you've never said I love you once in my 17 years that I can remember. Not once have you told me this. I know you as a, as a tough guy, but not as someone who I believe actually loves me. You've never even said it. Oh man, have, may that not be you and I. You and I would be those, that type of a man. Biblical masculinity is both courageous and gracious. Amen? Both. And so this begins in the home, but it extends onto the church, this affectionate partnership in addition to our culture of optimistic partnership. Thirdly, thirdly, write this down. We should strive for a committed partnership. A committed partnership. Because both Paul and the Philippian church were focused on the greater progress of the gospel and not on peripheral matters, they were fully committed to their partnership. By the way, not only when ministry was easier or calm, but especially when it was hard. Look at verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. It makes perfect sense why I'm grateful for you because I have you in my heart. And here's the proof now of their mutual um, commitment, right? Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Oh, Paul says, not only have you been with me in the sunny seasons of life, but you've been with me also in the storms of life, in the face of persecution and aggression and hostility and in the defense of the gospel. You've been with me through thick and thin. You've proven your commitment to the gospel and to me as an agent of the gospel. It's all because of the gospel that you've done this. You see that word there, partakers, at the end of verse 7? Partakers? The NIV translates it share or sharers, and I like that translation. It's our word partakers there for fellowship. It's koinonia, fellowship. But it's got this little word attached to the front of it. It's soon koinonia. 
Soon koinonia, meaning co-fellowshippers, co-sharers, co-partners. Paul says, you're dear to me because you are my co-partners of grace. We're in this thing together. And we've been the recipients of God's grace as we've defended the Gospel in the face of opposition. He's not referring here primarily to saving grace when he says co-partners of grace or partakers of grace rather. Right? He's talking here about that in their mutual suffering for the sake of the Gospel, God has extended His, His sustaining grace to them. In that sense, they are partakers of grace. They wouldn't have been able to make a firm stand for the sake of the Gospel if God's enabling grace had not been empowering them to do so. Both in the case of Paul and these believers. In Paul's case, he's in jail, he's in bonds, he stood before great rulers giving a defense of the Gospel, and the Gospel has been confirmed through the testimony of, of Paul, and it's been confirmed in the sense that, that Paul has given a compelling defense of its truthfulness and its legitimacy in the face of opposition. So God's grace has been powerful in Paul's life, and in the case of the Philippians, they've been through the ringer too. There's the infiltration of false teachers and false teaching. He's going to talk about this in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. In both Paul and the Philippians' case, both of them, as defenders of the gospel, have been the recipients of God's grace. And this market, rather than causing distancing between them, has actually led to a greater commitment in their mutual partnership. Paul and the Philippian believers. You know, the opposite can happen, right? Trials and testings in the life of a church will challenge this. Trials and testings in the life of the church will either cause us to drift apart or to draw closer together, to divide or to unite and conquer for the sake of the gospel. Trials and testings have the function of doing one or the other. And the key... And the key, if we are going to divide or, or, or uh, unite for the sake of the gospel, is that we keep the greater purposes of God and the grand enterprise of the gospel at the forefront, right? Not individual personal agendas. Not past peeves that we don't resolve with one another. Listen, keeping our eyes on the greater progress of the gospel will safeguard us from stirring the pot in the context of the church. From stirring the pot. Instead, if we keep the greater progress of the gospel in mind, right, we will fight for unity in the gospel, which is the ultimate theme of the book of Philippians. Unity in the gospel. That's what Paul is doing. He opens up his letter. He says, let me thank God for you. Let me pray for you. Let me, let me, do, let me pray even for your abounding love. All of that for the sake of the gospel because the gospel is greater than us. He doesn't even deal with the explicit issue of division until chapter 4 where he even calls them out by name, right? First, he says, let's, get, let's cultivate a Christ-exalting perspective. Let's set our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then, that's going to regulate and inform and shape the way that we deal with one another. So think about this. To whatever extent, if you have problems of division in other relationships, to one extent or another, you've lost sight of the Gospel. You've lost sight of a, of a Christ-exalting perspective. Of making much of Jesus. Because if you were focused on Jesus, then you know what? That's going to regulate and shape and inform how you deal with other people, beginning with those in your home and in the context of the church. How you pursue these relationships, even when it gets hard, 
We are going to be committed to one another in this partnership. You know, recently we attended a wedding. It was a beautiful wedding last week. There's that part of the wedding vows where both the man and the woman vow and agree to remain committed to one another. And you remember these words? For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's commitment in the marriage covenant. Well, you know what? This is true in the church as well. As a church goes through fiery trials, one of two things will happen. People in the church will either respond to challenges by becoming angry, flustered, impatient, embittered, leading to division and disunity, or a church will respond to difficulties with a greater commitment to working together because after all, we're in this gospel enterprise together until the end and then forevermore into eternity. Amen? But the latter is only possible when, we're our, when our eyes are fixed on someone greater, on a cause greater than ourselves, brethren. This is the cause of the Gospel. Again, this is why Paul begins his letter here by directing them to a Christ-exalting perspective before he gets into any of the explicit issues that he's going to get into. False teaching, their unity, them needing to help a couple of women in the church to reconcile with one another, all of that. He's reminding them about the basis of their partnership and why they are here because to some extent or another, they have lost sight of the greater progress of the Gospel, you see. And so listen, when Christ is central and Christ is our highest priority, we'll take a partnership approach in life and ministry. We'll work to to work well together in unity. What might this look like? Write these down, okay? Five things. Here are some practical implications of this, okay? And I'm just going to fire them away. First of all, individualism will go out the window. A mindset of individualism will go out the window. Instead of, instead of being individualistic, we'll strive to work side by side in a collaborative effort for the greater advancement of the gospel. We'll take a team approach rather than a, an individualistic and autonomous approach to ministry. Second, tribalism and a competitive spirit will be done away with. Tribalism and a competitive spirit will be done away with. By tribalism, I mean these are my people. This is my small group. I've always been with these people. Right? Tribalism and a competitive spirit will be done away with. Instead, we'll want to assimilate others, right? And want to help others succeed in the work of the ministry. If I succeed, you succeed. If you succeed, I succeed. If I fail, you care about that. If you fail, I care about that. Yes? Third, humility will be fostered. Humility will be fostered. Which means that proud rivalries and a possessive attitude in ministry will be repented of. Humility says that we're going to hold things loosely, looking to reproduce and multiply rather than holding tightly to what we think we're entitled to, what belongs to us. Humility will exist. Fourth, isolationism won't be the norm. Isolationism won't be the norm. You'll want to invite others into your life to partner with you and vice versa, to collaborate together in life and ministry. Fifth, fifth, We'll look to cultivate a relational approach in ministry and life. A relational approach. We want to work side by side. But as we do that, getting to know one another. We're not just serving, we're serving in relationship with one another. We're cultivating, um, getting to know one another, right? Deep, profound relationships by the grace of God. Those are five implications. 
of an, a partnership approach in ministry. Well, much to your dislike, potentially, in addition to being a huge Dodgers fan, I'm also a Lakers fan. Oh, man, double whammy, Pastor Kemp is bummer, you know? Now, I'm not as big of a Laker fan as I used to be. I got to be honest about that. But even with all the drama surrounding the Lakers over the past few years, I've always been a Lakers fan. And especially in the early 2000s, when there was even more drama. How many of you remember Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant? Shaq and Kobe, right? Two of the greatest players ever, center and point guard, or shooting guard, rather. But, you know, those early years with Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant were like a soap opera. I mean, the Lakers were constantly, these guys were just constantly bickering during the regular season, back and forth, right? Back and forth, complaining and grumbling at each other. This is my team. No, this is my team. It's a lot of rivalries between them. On and on this went throughout the whole season. But it was really interesting, as I remember following them, that sometime toward the end of the season, right? And of course, we don't know when because we're we're the audience, right? We're just fans following from a distance. But sometime toward the end of the season, something would happen. There would be some defining moment. Maybe Phil Jackson, their coach, would sit them down and say, hey guys, the playoffs are coming up. It's time for us to unite for a common purpose or whatever, right? Or they would have some kind of conversation. Somewhere down toward the end of the year, at the beginning of the playoffs, they would get on the same page, Shaq and Kobe. They'd stop bickering at each other. They recalibrated, and they were reminded of their mutual common goal, which was to win a championship for the Lakers. And then it was on. I'm telling you. I mean, they just won, uh, ran over everybody in the playoffs, and they would win it all, right? And it was always interesting to me why these guys could not earlier, right, as they played together during the season, set aside their differences, for this greater purpose of winning a title, but thankfully they did it at the end of the year, right? And they won multiple titles. They could have won a lot more. You know, I always think about that. Those guys uniting at some point in time for the, the greater purpose of winning a championship in the NBA. And you know, it's similar in the church, isn't it? But it's deeper. It's eternal. It's not for some earthly or temporal endeavor. It's sincere from the heart, right? We are doing these things, seeking to be in partnership with one another in this way because eternal matters are at stake. And brethren, when we, by God's grace, are committed to setting aside petty peripheral matters and we seek peace and unity for the greater progress of the gospel, fixing our eyes on Jesus, God will use us all the more as a church. Amen? That's what we want. We want to be here on mission to accomplish His mission, but we must walk in unity. Not uniformity, not superficial emotionalism. Unity in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We're all part of that eternal enterprise. So may God help us to be people who are gospel-fueled, even in our partnership approach. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your wonderful grace and reminder of the way that you have brought us into this wonderful unity through Jesus Christ with you and with one another. We thank you for the fact that you have called us to function in unity. We do not create unity. Your word tells us that you have, through the person and work of Jesus, established an unbreakable unity between, amongst believers who are in union with Christ 
But Lord, we are called to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at your right hand. Father, we await his wonderful, wonderful return, and we pray that you would help us in the meantime to be people who are on mission. Father, all the more by your grace, fostering a relational partnership approach in everything that we do in life and ministry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.